Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Neil just selected a chip with the most, like, thought and grace I've ever seen anybody <laughs> deploy to select a chip. It was the physical hand gesture version of, I don't mind if I do. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Neil Barnholden. After a short holiday hiatus, we're sitting down in the same damn room <gasps> to bring you our promised Q&A mini-sode follow-up to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And Marcel is poking me very hard. <laughs> gentle gentle one-finger one touch. That's right, witches. We went a little long on the last episode. So we're back to answer. We actually went so long that Neil had to leave. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, so we went a little long in the last episode, so we are back to answer the questions that you asked us using the Fantastic Asks hashtag in a single episode-long segment we're calling Fantastic Asks and Where to Find Them. Nope. <laughs> Fantastic Asks and Where to Ask Them. It's the world's greatest segment name. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> Very good segment. <laughs> you did a really good job. Ten out of ten. Which please, which please, make it make sense to me, because a muggle in me just wants to know. Oh, oh. Which please, which please, make it make sense to me, because a muggle in me just wants to know. Topic one: obscurity. Or obscure eye, depending right. on Latin or Greek. I'm having a surprisingly hard time 
pronouncing all of the words from this movie, considering that it was a movie, so I, I encountered them all <laughs> said for the first time. And yet, having written them down now, I have no idea how to say any of them. So I still need to think about Scamander or Scamander every oh. time. I'm always wrong, though. You don't do enough impressions of actors in your head. You have to do more more impressions. You're an interesting man, Mr. Scamander. <laughs> so it's Scamander. <laughs> I'm really flummy. <laughs> oh, this is off to a roaring start. So our first question from Kristen Morin is, if wizarding authorities know about Obscurials and knowing how volatile teenagers are in general, isn't enacting the decree for the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery a pretty risky move? <laughs> isn't it? It's almost like if people know that abstinence-based sexual health education leads to higher rates of STIs and pregnancy, isn't enacting that as a policy in post-secondary education a pretty risky move? I would like to congratulate the question asker for formulating an exceptionally well-phrased question that answers itself. <laughs> Bravo, Kristen Warren. Bravo. <laughs> like how much people are using the this movie and the new information that it provides us with to sort of reread and complicate stuff that they know from the original series mm-hmm. on january 1st on new year's day marcel and i watched the first half of the lord of the rings trilogy extended edition we got through the first disc of the second movie mm-hmm. uh and i was thinking about the hobbit movies which i haven't seen since i saw them all in theaters because i make great life choices and spend my money wisely <laughs> and how little any of those movies added to the lord of the rings trilogy <laughs> like they didn't they gave they gave you no like it was just <laughs> get it together <laughs> It was just like the worst kind of foreshadowing where like a character would look off into the distance and be like, something evil is coming, (gasps) but you need to wait a book or two. No, I think we can all agree that like we wouldn't possibly have known that Sauron, Sauron? Scamander. Sauron. Sauron. Was evil if it hadn't been for that really helpful scene of the necromancer flashing into Sauron's eye back and forth oh, for wow. like at least 112 minutes. <laughs> at least. Because just when you're like, they're going to stop now, it keeps going. Never. Just in case you didn't get it. I don't think I would have completely understood the Lord of the Rings trilogy if it hadn't been for that very helpful bit of explanation. <laughs> Do you think anyone watching the movie had any moment where they went, oh, this is Lord of the Rings. Oh, that's him. That's the guy. That's the guy. I I just, oh, wait, I just got it. Yeah. So this, like, as as a prequel, Fantastic Beasts is so much more interesting because it's not about exactly the same characters and it isn't as heavy handedly foreshadowing the books that we already know but it's actually providing us with more more new interesting tidbits of of information and Mm -hmm. i think this is one of them like we now have the context to know what can happen to young witches and wizards when they are not allowed to practice their magic and so we have a better sense both like 
of maybe the really difficult decision the wizarding world needs to make around like it's really urgent that we keep our young people safe because they are vulnerable when they are young Mm -hmm. they're vulnerable to muggles who can be hateful and abusive we see that in this movie we see it in the original trilogy Mm. (laughs) let's just call it i mean i think we can all agree see it there as well but but to then get that sense that like there's also risks involved in telling people not to do magic and mm-hmm. that it like might not be the best decision to have made but also kind of makes sense mm-hmm. i guess if we think about magic as a as a tool or an ability uh and not as an identity mm-hmm. or i might rephrase this when yeah. i get to the end of my sentence Classic marcel always bringing identity politics into Ugh, typical um yeah so if we think of it in terms of like a like a craft or a skill or or something that you're learning how to do um I guess in some senses it does kind of make sense so you know how proponents of like quality sex education will will compare learning about sexual health and whatnot with driving a car and so they'll make the argument that you don't just like put a person in a car with the keys and be like driving is dangerous you shouldn't drive drive now but safely like I wonder if maybe we might similarly think about magic in a similar way. Like students, everybody knows that they're going to do it. So they have a reasonable restriction. It's not a like, if you do it, you go to Azkaban. It's like, you're really not supposed to do it. Maybe that's why the students are at Hogwarts for so many months of the year. Because can you imagine what it would be like to parent teenagers when they're not allowed to do magic for more than two months it would be exhausting like when i think of what a pain in the ass i was as a teenager and i was like fuck you mom i can do whatever i want i think i think it's interesting though as as kristen morin points out that that does seem inconsistent but plausibly inconsistent i mean it's the kind of inconsistency that you do encounter in the real world Mm -hmm. and i was thinking that maybe it's because if you imagine that the reason that uh youths with magical abilities are taught how to use them is to avoid obscurials Mm -hmm. existing then you can think of the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery as just being a further attempt to kind of i don't know to solidify the sort of formalness of that education so there is no informal wizarding education that's well there is no legal informal wizarding education Mm -hmm. which is interesting because i think I think this question is a really good one because it it points towards the fact that that's not really an adequate solution to it. It's it, there's a problem of obscurials which happens and maybe there are there is not really an adequate solution in this universe for what to do about that, which I do think is extremely realistic. <laughs> I mean, that's really true. That's not anything you can think of that as an analogy for. There's no thing that you can do just pass a law and there you go yeah right yeah it's like this is it's really interesting because this what you're just what you have been describing neil reminds me of the question that so many people ask us constantly which is about the pre-hogwarts education which like jk rowling at some point said it's up to parents to do that and i think we all agree that that's outrageous (laughs) (laughs) um but what is suddenly making sense to me about that is if there was a more formalized 
I, you know what? I was going to say if there was a more formalized education system, then maybe the restriction would apply to those students as well. And it would be a lot harder to control 11 and younger mm-hmm. and prevent them from doing magic than it is from like, you know, tweens and, and teens. Mm-hmm. You know, you like get mm-hmm. stuff. You can like have a reasonable conversation with a person and say mm-hmm. like, please don't hex people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I remembered that you can have different Mm-hmm. laws for different age groups which they already do because the reasonable restriction only applies to you once you turn 11 and mm-hmm. they could just have a different anyway, yeah. okay i take it all back yeah i mean i'm thinking of the way that the reasonable restriction all of a sudden like when harry does things magical by accident when he is young before he turns 11 that is fine those accidents are acceptable Um, It's once he is considered, according to the Wizarding World, to be old enough to be receiving the education that will allow him to control that, that it is no longer acceptable. And so it's like you're mature enough to make decisions. And that has parallels in how we think about law today as well. And so when you're thinking about obscurials, you're thinking about protecting children who are under 11, who not only don't have control, but who can't be expected to have control. Mm -hmm. And the very like 11 then becomes the age not only that you're old enough to control yourself but that maybe that your magic has developed enough that controlling it will not cause you long-term damage Mm -hmm. and so like to try to control magic when younger um is actually damaging Mm -hmm. whereas trying like you hit a certain point of maturity where you can actually start to like voluntarily not do it and it's not going to break you in any way is the do we think that the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery is the legal entity that gives the formal magic education system its legitimacy at all? Whoa. Because if it wasn't if it wasn't for that, then you could learn magic in any number of other ways. Mm-hmm. Great question, Neil. But that that like the formal magical education system, which is obviously profoundly like in bed with the government Mm -hmm. um which is synonymous to law enforcement in the wizarding world that we're familiar with Mm -hmm. um is all about this sort of wizarding worldwide strategy of keeping yourselves hidden from muggles and so yes you can imagine a world in which wizards would be able to educate themselves in which maybe wizards did educate themselves um and learned different traditions and learned more idiosyncratic, culturally specific versions of magic, but that that is inherently less controllable Mm -hmm. and that uncontrollable versions of magic are what puts wizards at risk. Mm -hmm. I feel as with so many things in the Harry Potter world that I'm like at the edge of an analogy right now. (laughs) It's like, it doesn't map perfectly onto anything. It's just like that general attitude of like, you are somewhat in some way, what you are is, inherently risky and so you must learn how to control it so this this sort of segues us into um probably the 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 number one most frequently asked question on the fantastic asks hashtag which was knowing what we now know about obscurials was ariana dumbledore on obscurial i don't have an answer to this but when we were talking about uh the idea that you age into a sorcery restriction. I was thinking about siblings, actually. You could have situations where you have multiple people in the same family who are at all possible stages of the development of a magic user. If we're thinking about the idea of an obscurial, 
it becomes a matter of cruelty, basically, to allow an Obscurial to develop in a family where one of their siblings does have magical powers and the use of them. So Obscurials are caused by, like, an intense trauma of some variety that forces the child to repress their magic, right? That's the impression that the that the film gives us, yeah. right? That, like, it's not super clear if trauma is the only thing mm-hmm. or if it's, like, ongoing repression or, or what. So... Mm-hmm. So if Ariana Dumbledore was an Obscurial, that would definitely make an argument for it to be related to trauma and not just, mm-hmm. like, living in secret. Yeah. Yeah. And we see two other people, one of whom is being, like, horrifically abused. Mm-hmm. And the other we don't see the other one, but the other one referenced by Newt is um, a girl who was imprisoned. Mm-hmm. So those all suggest sort of major traumatic childhood events mm-hmm. in which um, the practice of magic, the sort of unintentional <laughs> childhood practice of magic in some way leads to that child being abused. Mm-hmm. And this is like, that's the story we have of Ariana Dumbledore, right? That she, she practiced some magic when very young. Do we know how old she was? I think she was 12 when she died. Yeah. So we know that it was sometime before that, mm-hmm. that she like practiced some magic and some boys saw her and they wanted her to show it, them how to do it. And something terrible was done to her. And then from then on, she had to be kept at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I see no reason... I see nothing wrong with that that mm-hmm. reading. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think, like, we know that in some way Grindelwald found out about the existence of Obscurials and became obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. And the setting of Fantastic Beasts is after that time that Grindelwald and Dumbledore spent together. And so it's after Grindelwald would have known Ariana and seen what happened to her. Mm-hmm. If he saw Ariana's Obscurus released and saw it kill people he would know the power of them and so it would make sense that he then is aware of that as a form of dark magic and is seeking it out elsewhere i think i think it ties together a lot of narrative threads and that makes it a good theory yeah at some point jk rowling will come along and tell us if we're right or wrong (laughs) like the thing that i find so outrageous is the idea that she might come along and be like no 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 when it's so very obviously the thing that makes the most sense, uh-huh. not unlike the fact that Sirius Black and Remus Lupin were obviously in love with each other. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Oh, oh. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Topic two, Legilimens. <laughs> Ms. Megan asks, I'm curious about the conversation around consent, privacy, and legilimency, especially in regards to Quinny. So we can also add in Angry Care Bear's question, what are the ethics of mind reading when you're magically wired that way and it's a sixth sense akin to sight? It was really interesting to me to see a uh, such a different representation of l- legilimency probably not because what we've seen before is we know Voldemort's a powerful Legilimens and Snape is and so it seems to be something that's associated with not only with dark wizardry but with aggression and violence and a refusal to respect people's personal boundaries mm-hmm. and um and it seems to be represented predominantly as something done intentionally and aggressively mm-hmm. Uh, and we see a really different version of it in Queenie, mm-hmm. that she does it unintentionally, that she 
does not respond to knowing what people think with any anger or aggression. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't use it against people. We don't know if it's something she could control if she wanted to. She claims that she cannot control it Mm -hmm. um, and therefore has sort of has turned into the kind of person who um, can just live with that knowledge, um, which is like probably kind of horrifying and overwhelming to know what people are thinking about you every time they meet you. There's that joke where she says like, oh, it's okay, honey. People always think that when they first see me. But like that had to have taken some work to get to the point of that being okay instead of that being horrifying. So I, but I don't, I don't know what the larger implications are for us around this idea of a sort of non-aggressive, non-violent form of um, legend, mind reading. Thank you. That... Uh, that is being positioned as acceptable because an acceptable character is doing it. I I do feel like a lot of this question goes to the specifics of this portrayal of mind reading because it's, I feel like it is really key whether she is trying to read minds or not, or whether minds are just legible to her. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it's, it's such a, I find it to be a really unique portrayal of mind reading for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, if something is legible to you that is about a person who believes it to not be legible, mm-hmm. to be a secret, if that is the case, if if we've accurately described how Queenie works, then, I mean, her only ethical choice is to be the kind of person that she is. Yeah. But I don't know how that goes to the ethics of it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think she behaves as an ethical person if that is the situation that she's in. Mm-hmm. If she has the choice not to, though, I I don't know if that's true anymore. I think that a key component to what makes Queenie's behavior ethical is the fact that she is open about the fact that she mm-hmm. is a Legilimens. It doesn't necessarily do anything to make the people around her feel better. If anything, it probably would make them feel more um, ill at ease, uh, knowing that she could be reading their mind at any time. But I do think that that is the more ethical choice. Like, like ignorance is bliss isn't a thing that you can apply when somebody can read your mind. That's not, that doesn't, that's not, that's not cool. Um, So, so I think that's worth, that's worth considering, but I don't have an easy answer Mm -hmm. for it. I also wonder what it is that Queenie can read. Mm -hmm. Can she read surface conscious thoughts? Or can she read thoughts to a level that would be things that are unknown to the person thinking them? Mm-hmm. It it doesn't totally resolve the issue, but I feel like those are very different things. Like yeah. if she can just, if what she has is a sort of magical version of being able to, I don't know, read faces really well, mm-hmm. that seems very different than being able to, you know, perceive anything that someone is trying to conceal even from themselves yeah. which is how other fictional mind readers yeah. are portrayed certainly mm-hmm. yeah. i'm not it's not clear to me from the movie which one yeah. is at play there the impression that i got from the movie is that she's only reading people's surface thoughts because like she knows like when she meets jacob she knows his first thoughts about her she knows what he wants from dinner she knows that he's super hungry um later on she knows that one of her co-workers is sleeping with somebody else she only knows about newt's relationship with lita lestrange um because she asks him about the photo mm-hmm. 
And so he obviously then thinks stuff about her and that, that she can read. And But we know from the from you know Snape and Voldemort that you can if you work deliberately you can take much deeper memories from people including ones that they have been trying to repress and so that suggests to us that there's just the surface level of information that she's just receiving whether she wants it or not and that she basically treats that stuff as conversation as like part of just how she interacts with other people but we see no evidence of her making an active effort to retrieve any information that isn't like what's right on the tip of people's minds. Yeah. That kind of privacy is really complex because you're right. If it's a, just a kind of reading, then it's like, am I invading people's privacy if I'm particularly good at reading body language? You know, and is, is what she's doing unethical when maybe it's the equivalent of asking somebody how they're doing and they go, I'm fine. And you're like, right. is it unethical to be like, no you're not like then that just becomes a matter of 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 social like interpersonal dynamics i always have this question about people who have sort of powers that are always active do you think that at some point in her life queenie became able to read minds or do you think she's always been able to read minds doesn't she say that she's Am I just making this up? I thought that she says it's just something she's always been able to do. Well, follow up to that. If that's true, do you think she understands what it's like to be people who can't read minds? No. Right. I mean, I do feel that that's a relevant ethical point to bring in, that she's not a person who couldn't read minds and then suddenly could. Mm -hmm. If to her that's always been a part of human interaction, then I would say she's behaving quite ethically by telling people that that's the case and also by introducing into spoken conversation mm -hmm. yeah. what people are thinking. Mm -hmm. that, that information becomes something everybody in the room has, not yeah. just her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by maintaining really solid personal boundaries about the fact that what other people think of her is not is not on her right mm -hmm. like right. that's other mm -hmm. people's yeah. what other people think of you is their right to think of you no matter how gross it may actually be mm -hmm. or you know not gross and flattering sometimes who knows maybe jacob was just thinking gosh she's pretty yeah <laughs> but she tells him not to worry because it's embarrassing for somebody to know you think they're pretty i know i know i'm Bless your heart, Hannah. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Oh, oh. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Topic three, Credence and Grindelwald. Team Hobby Horse asks, do you think that Credence's fate wasn't given the weight it should have? Even our protagonists never talked about him again. <gasps> I remember 
feeling really surprised that he dies and feeling really, um, I remember feeling really agonized that it, that that's just done with. And, Mm -hmm. and, and for me, that was part of the weakness of the plot. This, like one of the characters who I felt the most attachment to Mm -hmm. just like gets literally blown away Mm -hmm. and then, and then everybody's good. (laughs) And that, didn't I was un I'm I am able to suspend disbelief for the concept of obscurials in the first place. I am not able to s- suspend my disbelief for shoddy storytelling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we watched this child who both Newt and Tina in particular were like, like just agonized over his fate, and then in the next scene, they're like, mm, we got some other problems to solve. Like they never mention him again. They're not visibly grieving. They're not even particularly visibly shaken. Um, and I suspect that, that that is just bad, bad storytelling mm-hmm. um, that I kind of don't buy that these characters wouldn't like go home and struggle with what just happened. Maybe we'll see that in the next movies. Like maybe we'll see some longer term consequences of this, of, of what they witnessed. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was strange that they set up the character arc of Newt still being upset over the previous Obscurial that he met and couldn't save. And then he, though he seems to be this very empathetic character, yeah, seems really undisturbed by this horrible, horrible thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I I agree. I don't think it was given the weight that it should have been. Pewterwolf13 wants to know if we believe Grindelwald is actually gay or bi, or if he is manipulating the emotions of those around him. This emerged from a larger conversation we were having about whether or not Grindelwald is actually a canonically gay character, or if what we're seeing is just Grindelwald being a manipulative character. Can it be both? No. I have some terrible news for you. <laughs> Not all of the evil people in the world are heterosexual. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I think that it makes him a much more interesting character if it's both. Mm. I think okay. it makes him a much more um, well thought out and interesting and three-dimensional character if uh, he is evil irrespective of his sexuality, mm-hmm. but uses his sexuality um, as one of his many other tools to get what he wants right Mm -hmm. like we see this with with heterosexual villains all the time so i don't know why we couldn't necessarily see it with a queer villain yeah i also really wouldn't want to think of a character as shamming uh like being gay or bi in order to manipulate people for their evil ends i think that Mm -hmm. sort of associates sexuality with uh like a kind of weaponized choice for evil of something, which I know is not what the story would be saying, but I just, I don't think that's really a great place to go with one of the few characters in this entire universe who, you know, if not explicitly canonically is like pretty much a lock. Yeah. 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 I do. I do prefer also to read him as gay and also a villain and those just being two things that are true about him at the same time, rather than, uh, using his villainy as a way to question his queerness mm-hmm. yeah so which you know which doesn't mean that he's not manipulative it doesn't mean that he's yeah. not aware of the power he has over a, a kid like credence and mm-hmm. is willing to use that power to get what he wants mm-hmm. um it just means that that willing that willingness to manipulate him in that way does not then mean that his queerness isn't real right. i think that 
this kind of question also raises the issue of like how we even define sexuality in the first place. Like, like I think many of us remain hung up on the idea that like sexuality and identity are necessarily intertwined when like there are people who self-identify as queer who never practice queer sexuality right there are people who there are men who identify as gay men who never have sex with other men Mm -hmm. that doesn't make them any less gay they're Mm -hmm. still entitled to that identity but then there are also men who Mm -hmm. have sex with other men who do not identify as gay right Mm -hmm. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that sexuality and identity are slippery, slippery slopes. No, not slopes. Are slippery, slippery concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Not slopes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only getting worse. (laughs) You heard it here first. Oh, shit. Sexuality and identity. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, everybody. Anyway, yeah, they're super slippery concepts. And I think that... uh, I think it's okay to not be definitive about everything. So on that topic, by Shakespeare is wondering if Grindelwald's manipulation of a boy in this movie is supposed to give us a view of his relationship with Dumbledore before. So what can we learn? Can we learn anything more about Grindelwald and Dumbledore via watching Grindelwald's relationship with Credence? I'm so hesitant to posit an answer because... I know that J.K. Rowling is just going to show up and be wrong, and that's fine. So give a better answer. Yeah. I, well, so yeah. so my better answer than J.K. Rowling's than the than the answer I'm anticipating from J.K. Rowling is that it is necessarily different because Grindelwald and Dumbledore were the same age. Um, very close. Very close in age. They were peers in a completely different way. Like. Like Grindelwald slash Graves' relationship with Credence was necessarily manipulative because because Credence was ostensibly a child and he was a kind of mentor figure to him or a, a parental figure and and he deliberately allowed Credence to to confuse or to be confused about whether or not he was loved as a like as a as a child or as a like partner or as a peer Mm -hmm. um and that's i think that that is that necessarily has to be different so i'm not saying that grindelwald wasn't a douchebag in his relationship with dumbledore Mm -hmm. but i think it necessarily has to be different because of the way in which age can entail power dynamics yeah which please which please make it make sense to me because a muggle in me just wants to know oh, oh, which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Topic four, representation. So Pewter Wolf 13 would like us to chat a bit more about race. Mainly Madame Pickery, Madame Yajo, and the Tumblr Hoha, please. So for some context for listeners, at least as far as the context that I have, um, is that the the revelation that happened on Tumblr that Madame Yajo means Asia. And so essentially that Rowling named the only Asian character and the representative of all of Asian wizarding society, which for one thing is like, why would 
Asia have one <laughs> wizard in society, but also named that woman Madam Asia. <laughs> Which, when it came out on Tumblr, a bunch of people were like, uh, oh, that can't possibly be true. That must just be like Tumblr being nitpicky. And then somebody checked the published screenplay mm-hmm. and there it was. Mm-hmm. So uh, so what do you folks think about that choice that Rowling made? Maybe a useful way to respond to this request would be to um, sort of build off of the, the things that we talked about in the last episode. So Neil had pointed out uh, the stereotype squad. Uh, and how what like a problematic representation of cosmopolitanism that was Hannah had talked about how like essentially what this means is that you are presuming a white audience and you are attempting to make uh, diversity and representation legible to a white audience and how that's problematic Um, we talked with a handful of our listeners about um, Madame Yajo and how her name means Asia and even in those conversations there were still people in like people participating in those conversations with us who were like mm, but if it's not like it might just be like people misinterpreting like that those kinds of conversations were still happening yeah. maybe the way to move forward with this conversation is for all of us to do more listening to what the people directly implicated in those kinds of racisms are saying and do less talking amongst ourselves. I don't want to sound like an asshole, but I think I think these conversations have been had and have been had very well by by other people and maybe we can maybe we'll like we'll like put some links up to those conversations instead of trying to rehash what other people have said. I agree that watching people's response and watching how many people were rushing to assume it was a misunderstanding um, and to give Rowling the benefit of the doubt was it reminded me of um, the Tilda Swinton, Margaret Cho uh, debacle where because um, Tilda Swinton went to Margaret Cho and very nicely asked her to explain how race works. um, And then Margaret Cho after the fact was like, that was a fucking nightmare of a conversation. And then everybody was like, how dare you? You're being such a bitch. Tilda Swinton was so nice. It's that sort of white people constantly deserve the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. um, which in the context of white supremacy is not the case. It's people insisting that white people deserve the very benefit of the doubt that white people refuse to give to the non-white people who are like, what you just did was not okay. Um, I just wanted to mention, because this is something that I've figured out over the years, but uh, I'm the kind of person who, like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who, like, I would rather I would rather believe that there is less racism in the world than there is, and various problematic things. The problem with that is, is that it is a privilege to be able to say that. Like, to give the benefit of the doubt is a privilege itself. And I think I understand often where people come from because you hope that it's a misunderstanding or you hope that there's an explanation because you would rather that there is less racism, Mm -hmm. right? That would be like one incident where it somehow didn't turn out that way. But that's such 
a kind of privileged and delusional way to live. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just sharing this because like I do sometimes still think this way and I used to think this way a lot. And I think that really listening to other people, particularly people from these uh from the community that's being referenced is really really important in this case. And like just believe people. Like if someone says I found that racist, they did. <laughs> Like, nobody lies about that. Like, there's no possible reason to do yeah. that. So I don't, that's just, like, my, I don't know. I It's yeah. been a long time since I figured that out, and I still don't do it very well. But there you go. I would also like to add, I, I similarly do this too, Neil, and a strategy that I have found really useful for not contributing to other people's oppression when I'm when I want to give the potential oppressor the benefit of the doubt is I just shh yeah yeah just shh and see what happens (laughs) (laughs) if it turns out that the white person did indeed make an error that was completely misinterpreted I promise you, you will hear about it. (laughs) I promise. No. (laughs) At no point in time has a white person ever not been given exactly as much credit as they deserve. (laughs) You're you're saying that a white person has never been quietly exonerated of racism? (laughs) Is that what you're saying? Okay. Runal Waslib wants to know, regarding anti-blackness, how fucked is it that black characters and lack of trial executions are linked multiple times? It's super fucked. <laughs> so fucked. Oh my god. For sure what one thing that is being referenced here is the um the woman who I'm going to I'm going to link to this actual article, but the woman played by um, Mikkel Brown, who plays the magical executioner, who participates in Tina's attempted execution. We are not the authorities on this, um, but I, uh, I think just in case people are not, are for whatever reason, not familiar with this history, because I know we have listeners from all over and that people are not always aware of history. That is a subject that many people are weak on. There is a very long history uh, particularly in North America during both uh, slavery and the era of Jim Crow law when um, black people were frequently killed by mobs of white people without trials. And so there's, again, I have absolutely no interest in questions of uh, intentionality with the casting. Um, I think that it is the most generous possible reading is that it is uh, a horrifying level of laziness and ignorance being modeled for us. Um, and the more likely reading is that it is a sort of linking of um, blackness to non-trial executions that is uh, that is really insidious. And um, in a movie with so few black characters is particularly... Um, particularly horrific we we glossed the sort of briefly in the last episode we glossed the the absence of black characters but when we actually start to think more about who those characters are and the roles that they play it becomes even more horrifying um so the other question that we got on this is from 
Arden herself who asks, what did you think of the sexualized black goblin lady in the bar and the implications of goblin races? So that's the other role that we see black women playing in this movie is that we get the revelation that apparently goblins can have races, um, which we were not aware of because goblins have been used as metaphors for race thus far. And that, that we are encouraged to read that goblin as black in a way that is parallel to human blackness by positioning her as a sexualized lounge singer character. And that's both fucked up and profoundly confusing. So yeah, if you are not somebody who is already painfully aware due to your own positioning of both the dearth and the violence of representations of black women in cinema use this opportunity to read more widely about this we will again it sounds it's get, it's starting to sound like we're putting together a reading list for this episode mm-hmm. um which i think can't hurt but if this is not something you have already been thinking about a lot and are not already aware of i really encourage you to pay more attention to it and to think in re- really careful ways when you watch movies about the way that cinema represents black women because it's guys it's almost always this bad it's real fucked up katie a robinson asks i'd also love to hear your thoughts on narlax deformity a result of his being half goblin half human i think so for anybody who is as confused as i was uh narlax is the goblin man who owns the blind pig which is the bar that they go and he's the horrible person who tries to take newt's bow truckle and left us all in tears so i don't know enough about why his fingers are are bent back or how that might be related to his being uh part goblin i didn't actually realize that he was part goblin i just assumed that he was full goblin but just like a different a different like size and breadth of goblin i don't know he might be he might very well be uh, but one thing I think that we can say with confidence is that um, this is another example of um, the series using deformity and like disability as a way of signifying uh, villainy or um, deviation from goodness, right? Yeah. So we can very confidently say it's not okay for your only visibly disabled character to be a a shitty person yeah that's not a good way of including diversity of ability in your story that's (laughs) i would say fucked up which is the new the new subtitle of this episode it's fucked up it's real fucked up i just this just occurred to me it's not it's not a direct answer to this question but we've had conversations in the past about the way in which non-normatively bodied people are used as human special effects and this movie has instead cgi'd everyone so there's no use of little people as house elf or goblin proxies and yet despite that choice to cgi everyone instead the movie continues to trade on the equation of um disability and um different bodies as a signifier of people's moral characters mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like it's like oh you t- you did away with this one thing but just me just made sure to to keep reminding us that if someone looks weird they're probably bad mm-hmm. this is another slight tangent but 
I praised the animal rights ethos of the movie in our last episode, and I stand by that. But animal rights is a politics that white people particularly enjoy and that white people often use as a way to evade questions of racism. And it is uh, notable that our white protagonist, Newt, brings us into this world of a great deal of compassion for beasts. But in that world, humanoid non-humans are still treated with exactly the same level of hatred, disregard, bigotry, etc. Even while we are being encouraged to see these beasts as not monstrous. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Topic five. Other? Student of Whim wants to know. Neil. Given that Fantastic Beasts is a Scooby-Doo story, which creature is Scooby-Doo? I, I think you can probably guess what creature I want to be, Scooby. <laughs> it's entirely unwarranted by this. I mean, I believe what he is referencing is the fact that our protagonists, our sort of erstwhile scrappy gang of protagonists, spend this movie chasing down what they believe to be one villain, only to, in the final scene, pull a comical mask off his head and realize that it was actually old man struthers of the jam factory the whole time and he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids i also just realized that the bad guy turns out to be the first character we saw in the entire movie and the first name that we saw yeah but that is a real scooby-doo yeah, one of the questions somebody asked that I didn't end up including was, what do you make of the fact that the movie uh, like aggressively foreshadows that it's going to be Grindelwald? And I was like, I don't like that question because I didn't get it. <laughs> so many people are being like, oh, it was so obvious it was Grindelwald. And I'm like, you all need to shut up. I didn't know. <laughs> I did the same thing. Anytime anybody, even including a dear friend of mine who was like, uh, it was obviously Grindelwald. I knew it was him at the beginning. I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You're just retconning. You had no idea. People are so, this reminds me of a discussion right now about uh, Rogue One with Star Wars. So there's a, there's a character in it who's entirely CGI. And two. well, there's two. Yeah. One of them is more, you know prominent but i i really hate that people on twitter are like oh my god like anyone who couldn't tell that or wasn't aware of that must be like blind or something it's like like or you or you don't know that particular actor is dead or you're just not looking for that to happen or like there's any number of explanations for it i was one of those people who didn't know so screw all of you Fuck you. Well, so so I just I don't know who like what is the purpose of watching a science fiction or fantasy movie and being like that's not real. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? What is wrong with you? Scooby though, Scooby the bow truckle is Scooby. I think that's the only creature that makes sense here. The sidekick character who kind of is 
plot relevant. I mean, not as active as Scooby Doo, but the, like Scooby Doo just ran from stuff anyway. Like he just blundered into things. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Botruckle is a more inspiring figure. <laughs> the point of Scooby Doo isn't to inspire you, the audience. I don't think. Like the character of Scooby Doo. My my take on it is that it's the Botruckle. What do you two think? I'm more interested in you breaking down all of the other characters into their Scooby Doo. Oh, <laughs> this is gonna be good. Okay. <laughs> Okay, okay, so Daphne is obviously Queenie. Okay. That seems indisputable. Uh, I, would say that, I would say that Newt is Shaggy. Uh, Jacob, well, Jacob isn't really much of a Fred. Seems kind of hard. Hmm. I mean, you could, like, the gender thing. Scooby-Doo. Yeah, okay, Jacob can be Velma. But I feel like in Scooby-Doo, there isn't really a character who's noticeably more clueless than the others, with the exception of Scooby. Is Jacob Scooby? Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh no. This is this is complicated. <laughs> wow. I wish I was more familiar with Scooby Doo. Yeah. I'm not. I'm sorry. That's okay. Instead you can tell us what each of the characters from this movie what their equivalent is in uh Steampunk? Buffy. The Steampunk <laughs> Candidate Scooby Doo. Steampunk <laughs> Neil had forgotten about Steampug. I'm not, you, none of you have earned Steampug yet. Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 18B of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are always available at ohwitchplease.ca or wherever you download podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Special thanks to Freelance Love, Filthy Rat Baby, wow, and Abigail in the World for your lovely reviews. We're currently struggling to figure out how to access reviews on the international iTunes, but we have it on good authority that Indigo Han, Leticiando, Grebditch, and A Case for Books have left us international reviews, and for that, we are eternally grateful. Also, please let us know how to pronounce your handles if we did it badly, as I probably did. Shoutouts also to the Purple Coffee, Grebditch again, and Noranosaurus for posting sweet shots of yourselves with our glorious merch, which is available at society6.com slash ohwitchplease. And mega thanks to Becca Likes Books, who sent us a beautiful and delightful knit pair of headwigs in the mail we love them you don't even know how much we love them we love them so much so we've been hearing from a number of you about your disappointment about missing out on the twitter list due to the long hiatus between canonical episodes we're not gonna start doing it again i i tracked the number of people who tweeted at us between the last episode and this one and there's 303 unique twitter ids it's friends it is too much but we are going to keep working on coming up with other ways that we can get in touch with you and you can get in touch with us and we can include you in our episodes. So stay tuned about some possible exciting new ventures in that direction. I also want to give you all a heads up that we are in the process of working out ways to make our podcast more accessible through creating either transcriptions or captioned videos of our existing episodes. So please also stay tuned for more information about that. Can you imagine if we videotaped ourselves recording these episodes? 
disgusting. <laughs> there, there are literally chips all over my face right now. I've just got a face mask of chips. So good for my pores. Huge thanks to our wonderful friend Todd, also known as Toby B, for writing this special new theme song for Fantastic Asks. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. And special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? We'll be back with more of those minisodes you know and love. But until then... Later, witches. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.